Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we look at news, views and general happenings in the region. I'm Ewan Graham, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Joining me today from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute is Alex Josky. Thank you for having me. Alex, you've come down to talk to myself and some staff around some of the issues that you are regularly working on and well known for around technology appropriation and foreign interference concerning the People's Republic of China. It's a a moving target, to put it mildly, and certainly something that's seen a a great deal of attention in the news recently. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the current areas that you're working on? So my two main areas of research on politics, society, culture of the Chinese Communist Party abroad, and also the Chinese Communist Party's technology transfer efforts, how it's trying to gain tech and expertise from abroad. Now, you've talked about those as two different areas. Is there a sense in which they're also interlinked? I think a lot of uh, areas when we're looking at China are connected in unexpected ways. And political influence and technology transfer is one of those, where you actually see a lot of the same organizations that are involved in political influence, what we call the United Front System, also carrying out talent recruitment work for scientists and technology transfer activity, being involved in cases of industrial espionage. And you have a, a database that you've been working on that uh, is, is going to see light of day in the form of a publication. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Without going into too many details before publication, uh, ESPY's working on a, a project looking at the ties between Chinese universities and China's defense and security agencies, uh, hoping to really provide a tool that isn't out there at the moment to help people understand potential partners or research collaborators in China and be aware of some of these risks around tech transfer or military end use. Well, I certainly look forward to going through that in detail once it has been released, because I think one of the big problems is having a lack of publicly available evidence. We've had rising interest in the topic, both from the government and universities on the other side, but uh, the vacuum of having evidence to point to, I think, is part of the problem because there is a, a segment of uh, academic opinion that says constantly show us the evidence. And if there's no public evidence to point to, it's been a, a problem. But how would you analyze the state of play in the debate ar- around foreign interference and technology appropriation as it impacts on our university sector? I think in Australia, things seem to be moving back and forth a lot. Um, a few years ago, when I started writing about this area, there was almost no discussion around risks in research collaboration with China, with Chinese universities. But now that more case studies have come out, including my report, Picking Flowers, Making Honey, which looked at collaboration between the Chinese military and foreign universities, including a couple of Australian universities, there's been growing awareness. And now we've got this, the education minister has set up this foreign interference task force looking at the education sector. But I think we're still in this phase of recognizing and and talking about the problem. There haven't been many concrete steps taken as of today. There are two sides to that recognition, however. Uh, I think within government, clearly, there is a sense that this is being seized as a policy priority. Do you get the same sense that the penny has dropped within academia? Not as much as I'd hoped, to be honest. Uh, I think a lot of universities still need convincing that foreign interference is more than just a political topic for the government, that it's an actual strategic security issue that has long-term consequences for our country and not just individual universities. But it also does have important implications for universities. Foreign interference has the potential to 
affect and potentially harm the way universities engage with foreign partners such as the Chinese government or Chinese universities has the potential to shift those relationships in, in ways that might not align with the national interest. Can you give us some concrete examples? So one example would be collaboration with the Chinese military, where the University of New South Wales is one of the top collaborators in the world with the Chinese military. But the large level of engagement and reliance the university has on China, its Confucius Institute, its Torch Precinct, which might be coming with $100 million of funding with Chinese companies, these seem to have built the university's engagement with China without also building appropriate safeguards and mechanisms for carrying out due diligence and asking whether they should be collaborating with the Chinese military. And what about your analysis on the risks? You mentioned national security and the need, the need to bear that in mind. Is there also a, a moral dimension to this? Absolutely. I think ethics is one of the most important considerations that we should be looking at when exploring collaboration with foreign partners, especially given what we've been learning in the past couple of years about growing human rights abuses in China. Uh, it's not just democracy activists and members of spiritual movements like Falun Gong that are being persecuted. It's also ethnic minorities like the Uyghur ethnic minority who are facing growing levels of uh, persecution and abuse at the hands of the Chinese government. And if these are being aided and abetted through academic research, is all of this occurring, in a sense, outside of the purview of the Western academic partners? Or does this shade into willful negligence? China is still incredibly reliant on the West for artificial intelligence, specifically talent and expertise in that area. I think in 2016, a Chinese government official estimated that China has a talent shortage in AI of 5 million people, and it has to turn overseas to meet that shortage. So that means that a lot of the surveillance and facial recognition technologies that it's using to support its human rights abuses in places like Xinjiang have actually drawn on or even directly used technology developed by foreign scientists or scientists who are trained overseas. And the problem with that kind of technology is it may not be apparent even to the researcher themselves that it has that ultimate uh, end user risk. That's right. And the signal to universities and, and academics for a long time has just been to collaborate and to seek funding. And China's been a major source for that. Whereas now I think it's really important for universities and researchers to normalize thinking through some of these potential negative consequences and outcomes from collaboration. You've also been very clear in saying that you're not intent on shutting down engagement, that it's still important to have an ongoing research relationship that 1.2 billion people can't be shut out of scientific cooperation. So how do you draw the line in practice given that? Where is it possible to continue collaborations without encountering those moral and security risks? I think one of the ways is you can continue collaborating on a lot of areas in the humanities, a lot of areas around agricultural science and health science, for example. But it's just important, I think, in all cases to take a risk management approach and not look at things in terms of dichotomies, because it's these dichotomies that have, on the one hand, led to people entering collaborative arrangements with Chinese partners without introducing safeguards, or on the other hand, shutting out collaboration that might have some positive benefits while the negative consequences could have been managed. I think there's a lot of room for universities and researchers to think about the specific technologies that they're working on 
what are the applications? You know, I might be working on a technology for one purpose, but how could it also be used? Could it be used for a public security application, for example, in China? And what does that mean? Or does it have military applications? And then also looking at what you think the intentions of your partners in China might be, whether they have links to the military or security agencies that would facilitate collaboration being turned towards those purposes. And how would you assess China's own rate of technological progress towards a more independent innovation base? Because there's been quite a lot of academic inquiry on that very question. Is it possible that China could wean itself off to the point where it doesn't have to continue engaging in these kinds of dual-use partnerships for nefarious purposes? I think that's the Chinese Communist Party's aspiration. They've long emphasized this idea of essentially self-reliance in science and technology, playing up indigenous innovation. But currently, their model of scientific innovation is really a kind of unique globalized model that is about ensuring they can do the best job of integrating and diverting and leveraging overseas resources and overseas training and feeding that into domestic systems. An American researcher at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technologies has called it a sort of dual foreign domestic hybrid innovation model. So they're not just stealing technology, it's also about being able to rely and effectively leverage overseas resources. Just to take things back to a more personal focus, do you find that this is an easy area to do research? How do you go about securing collaboration from researchers in the field to give you your empirical data? I think there's an incredibly large space that remains for original empirical research on this space of exploring how technology is developed and transferred in China and how that relies on on the West and what kinds of collaborations are taking place because my research is almost entirely relied on open source work and there's an incredible amount of information that hasn't been uh, fully utilized and that's online, uh, information about links between universities and the military or security agencies, information about who's funding research and published academic papers, look at the co-authors and uh, see the large level of collaboration between the Chinese military and foreign universities. Some of that will come obviously from the United States. Is the United States, is it ahead of the curve on this issue with universities? Or do you think that Australia presents a different case that needs to be approached from a a unique standpoint? I think there are a few interesting aspects to the way the US has approached this. For a long time, they haven't been afraid of prosecuting individuals who are stealing technologies. So there's a a real wealth of information to be gleaned from indictments and, and prosecutions that have taken place in the US that often involve Chinese universities, not just professional intelligence agencies. And that's something that's missing, I think, in Australia, we really only have access to that open source information, which I think has almost biased people's understanding of interference and research collaboration issues, because it means that the stuff that is easiest to find is what people are familiar with. Whereas these indictments in the US have really shone a light on intelligence activity and and the real black side of the spectrum. Do you think there's been too much emphasis in terms of the government to deliver uh, solutions to the problem? What can universities do themselves to uh, inoculate themselves from risk? I think it really is important for universities to play a a role in self-regulating their activities. Ultimately, the government can't and shouldn't be deciding whether every case of collaboration between Australian researchers and foreign researchers should go ahead. So universities can be doing a lot more to make sure that they're 
enforcing existing policies. That means making sure that conflict of interest policies, external employment policies, and guidelines around commercializing research are being followed and enforced, and cases where they aren't being followed are being dealt with appropriately. Because in a lot of cases that we've seen through US indictments, failures to report running a lab in China or entering an arrangement with a Chinese university to influence negotiations between that institution and your university back overseas, back in the US, these arrangements often aren't declared. And that really undermines efforts by universities to ensure that what they're doing complies with their values, their interests, security concerns, and and the national interest. And you both speak and read Chinese. Is there enough publicly available information in your view if you're able to access those documents in Chinese to make informed decisions without referring to government information about which partners are more legitimate to deal with than others? I think there is. And there's so much room for more of this work to be done within universities. Uh, Universities really often seem quite unaware of the full nature of, of entities that they've entered arrangements with. Whereas with a lot of these universities, you can see quite clearly in Chinese language documents that they're closely integrated with the military. Whereas when I talk to Australian researchers who've entered partnerships with these universities, they're not actually aware of those military links. In fact, after I published Picking Flowers, Making Honey, one European researcher reached out to me and wanted to sort of learn more about my methodology so that he could take a look at what was happening in his university. So I shared my approach with him and then he came back to me and told me he'd found out that he had himself collaborated with the Chinese military, but wasn't actually aware of it. There's just so much room for universities to upskill and and raise their own awareness of this. And I think the contribution that you've made in providing some of that uh, public information is an important one. Turning now to the issue of Confucius Institutes, and La Trobe University hosts a Confucius Institute here, I think a lot of the focus of the public and political debate has fallen on that issue. Do you think they are, to some extent, overrepresented in the debate? I think they are overrepresented, but that's not to say that they're not important issues, because Confucius Institutes ultimately are under the guidance of not China's Ministry of Education, but actually a committee that sits at the vice premier level and has representation from the United Front system, which we know is designed and specializes in influencing groups outside of the party. So we have to approach Confucius Institutes with that understanding of the intentions and the forces back in China that have been driving this program. And then we do see that playing out in universities where Confucius Institutes aren't just teaching language and culture, which is what they state their purpose is. They're often serving as advisors or channels for building a university's broader engagement with China. And I think it is concerning to have an institution that also has an obligation back to Hanban, the organization overseeing the Confucius Institute program, driving your university's engagement with China. It's essentially a conflict of interest. So you think in that sense, they serve effectively as tools to frame the relationship favorably from the standpoint of the Chinese Communist Party? If they're not managed properly, that does happen. So UQ's Confucius Institute was organizing a course that framed China's repression of the Uyghur minority as a counterterrorism effort when it's plain and simple a human rights abuse. And that same Confucius Institute is also pushing science and technology collaboration with China. So it's important to make sure that Confucius Institutes are staying within their bounds of teaching language and culture and not 
playing an inappropriate role in a university's signing of MOUs with Chinese universities. You talked earlier about humanities as an area for collaboration in research that has more potential, fewer constraints than uh, the tech sector. But what risks might there be actually in that field? We're talking about, after all, politics being politics is going to create and generate obvious red flags in discussion. How does a university negotiate those hurdles? Yeah, I think some of the risks around humanities collaboration are in how these relationships are used to promote censorship or self-censorship in universities and essentially as leverage. You know, if you cross a certain boundary, we will no longer have this $1 million exchange program or we won't do professional training at your university. I think, again, it's just important for universities to ensure transparency and make clear that they're not going to tolerate self-censorship or they're going to uphold academic freedom, including in their engagement with China. So I think MOUs with Chinese institutions really should include a, a human rights clause, an ethics clause, and a freedom of speech clause, because if we're not doing that, then we're actually being influenced negatively by these engagements. We're giving up our core values. Let's um, put the lens forward a little bit. And where do you see this debate going in the next four or five years' time? And do you think that changes in government within Australia would make a significant difference? I think we're seeing growing divergence between policy on China in the Liberal Party and the Labour Party. Previously, there was an attitude of bipartisanship on China policy, where there actually weren't many discussions within Parliament about China policy. And it was something that was sort of just discussed behind closed doors. But we're seeing more divergence. And I think it's actually a positive development, which might help lead to constructive debates about policy and giving voters a choice about what kind of relationship they want for Australia's potentially most important diplomatic relationship in the next century, which is a really positive development. But in terms of sort of science and technology policy and, and collaboration in that space, I think globally we are seeing greater concern, greater efforts to improve activities and make sure that they do align with the national interests, using levers such as government funding to encourage universities and researchers to be more serious about security in the national interest when uh, carrying out research collaboration. Do you think that uh, Australia is now sufficiently joined up in terms of the gaps that we've seen between state and, and federal level, or even at a more local municipal level? Just in the news this week, we've had details of a, a new collaborative deal between Monash University and a, a Chinese aerospace firm coinciding with the visit of the Victorian Premier to renew his commitment to the Belt and Road Initiative and Victoria's place within that. Is that at odds with the messaging that we're hearing from uh, federal ministers who are talking in darker terms about the relationship with China in, in terms of uh, risks we need to be more mindful of than opportunities? This misalignment between the incentives of local and federal governments is, is, is proving to be a real issue. The Victorian government has signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative, which the federal government seems to be ruling out as an option. This essentially means that the Chinese Communist Party is having more success carrying out influence efforts at the local and, and state government levels, bypassing the bank of foreign policy and security expertise that federal governments can rely on, which then creates pressure from state governments onto federal governments. Alex, it's been a real pleasure to have you here today and thank you for your role on a fine summer Victorian day.
day and helping to shed some sunlight into some darker corridors. And I think that's the principle that transparency really is is something from which the Australia-China debate benefits from and matures. This is something that I think is not just a narrow debate amongst academics or between academics and government, but it's something in which the Australian public and all of us have a, a continuing stake. 100% agree about transparency. I think it's so important that we're having these debates about China. We can't afford, I think, to not talk about China and to have conversations about policy on China behind closed doors where there's no one really checking up to see whether you're you're really thinking hard about policy and coming up with policies that are, are genuine, serious and effective. So thank you for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. You may subscribe to Asia Rising on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you source your information. You can follow us on Twitter. Alex is at Alex Josky, and we are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Ewan Graham, and thanks for listening. <laughs>